Uh, I don't know about you, but I hate it when people don't believe me. They don't take my word. Uh, It happened the other day. Someone from an insurance company phoned me up to discuss a claim and when I answered, he said, are you David Bowser? And I said, yes. And he said, well, before I can continue, I need you to confirm who you are. You had those conversations. Uh, Can you give me your address and your date of birth? Well, uh, I felt like saying, well, you phone me. How do I know who you are? Give me your date of birth and your address. I felt like saying, just take my word for it. What do I need to prove who I am? Uh, What's wrong with my word? I told you, just trust me. That's what I felt like saying. I didn't. I just meekly gave in and gave them my date of birth and my address. But I felt like saying it because I don't like it when people don't believe me. Now that's the sort of situation we've got here in these chapters of Genesis. God's promised Abram. He's given his word but Abram won't trust him because it's all taken too long. Abram's not getting any younger and so Abram wants God to prove himself. It's just as well God's more patient than I am because God actually does give him proof again and again as we look at these chapters. You may remember a couple of weeks ago we looked at Genesis 12 where God told Abram to get up to move to a new country and then he promised Abram that in return he would make Abram into a great nation. He'd give him the land of Canaan, he'd give him descendants, uh, he'd be a blessing to everyone on earth. They're huge promises. Now that happened when Abram was 75 years old. We jump forward to chapter 15, it's some time later, it's probably years, and Abram's beginning to wonder, uh, to get scared, to doubt whether it's ever going to happen because there's still no kids on the horizon. Abram and his wife Sarah are getting older and so in verse 1 we read that God appears to him and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm your shield I'm your great reward. I've promised. Stop looking at the calendar. Stop looking at your wrinkles. I'm your reward. I promised it. But Abram's not convinced. Prove it, he says. Verse 2. What can you give me since I'm childless? So in verse 5, God takes him outside and he gives him an astronomy lesson. Look up at the heavens, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said so shall your offspring be. Now in Sydney, uh, we don't really notice stars, do we? There's too much uh, ambient light. But many of you will know what it's like when you go out into the bush where there's not a single spotlight, not a single street light, there's no smoke, there's no pollution and you look up at the sky and you say, why have I never seen this before? It's like there's been an explosion and there's about a million times as many stars as you've ever, as you've, as you've ever seen before And they just keep going on and on, deeper and deeper. It's like you're suddenly seeing something in three dimensions rather than just in two. And that's the sort of thing God's got in mind. He says, that many descendants, too many to count. And then we get to verse 6, which I want to suggest is just about the most important verse in the whole Bible. Have a look at verse 6 carefully. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, Abram trusted God's word and God accepted that faith as sufficient to bring him into a relationship. Was it perfect faith? 100% faith? No. 
but it was just enough for God to work with. And God said, that'll do. I'll put you right with me. You're now on my side because you've got faith. Because as we saw last time, it's not so much about having perfect faith as the one you have faith in, the perfectly faithful one. It's not so much about trusting promises completely, about having, but instead about the complete trustworthiness of the one who makes the promises. It's not so much about Abram's belief as it is about the God who credits that belief as righteousness. That's what we have to remember when we look at what comes next. Straight after we read that God credits righteousness to Abraham because of his wonderful faith, uh, verse 7, God promises again that he'll give the land to Abram and then in verse 8, Abram says it again. Prove it. It's almost like there's this disjunction, this, this break between God crediting this amazing faith and, God, uh, and, and then Abram saying, verse 8, how can I know? Perhaps his faith is not that great after all, but God does it again. Uh, he proves his promises. He's shown Abram the stars, but now he's got something else to show him. It's a vision and perhaps as you, this is being read you thought, well, that's a little weird, isn't it? God tells Abram to fetch a cow, a goat, a sheep, a dove and a pigeon. Then Abram cuts the big animals down the middle and he arranges the two halves opposite each other with a path down the middle. It's pretty gruesome. You can imagine there being blood everywhere. The smell attracts some spectators. The the vultures descend. Uh, Abram drives them away. Uh, And as the day finishes, verse 12 tells us that Abram falls into a deep sleep so it's tough work cutting up cows, I, I would imagine, so he's pretty tired. Uh, and we read that a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Uh, perhaps a bit like that spooky mu- music in a movie when you know something bad's about to happen. Uh, and here it comes, God's message in a dream. Verse 13, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They'll be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. He's looking ahead to Egypt. That's only three generations away. His grandson Jacob. But there's light at the end of the tunnel because God will bring them back to the land, verse 14. And then we get to the weird bit, verse 17. God confirms his promises with a vision. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant or cut a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants I give this land. Smoke and fire passing through the middle of all these cut up animals. What's going on? Well, the tricks in that word covenant, uh, a fancy word for agreement or contract. Uh, It's the sort of thing we do in a marriage ceremony. The bride and the groom promise that they're going to live together until death. Then they give and receive rings as a sign of their commitment. Now, it's not the rings that make them married, it's the promises that make them married, but the rings are a sign of the commitment. And in Abram's day they had something similar. It was called a covenant ceremony. Two people would make a deal and they'd promise it, but then they would split an animal in two and then the two of them, the two people, would walk down the middle between those two pieces. And it was a sign of the promises Uh, that said something like, I promise it, 
but now may this be done to me if I break my promise. May I be broken in two if I break my promise. And so the ceremony was literally called cutting a covenant. And so what's going on when Abram sees that smoking fire pot and that blazing torch passing between the pieces of the animal, that's God saying to him, that's me walking between the pieces. I'm the one who's making this covenant commitment to you, who's making this promise. Because as you might be able to work out, smoke and fire, that's what Israel would come to associate with God himself. When he did lead them out of Egypt, uh, it would be a cloud of smoke that led the way uh, during the day and at night it was a pillar of fire. That was representing God. Abram said, prove it. God does then gives a ceremony to confirm, to establish, to make sure, to help us to trust his promise, his covenant. God's pretty good, isn't he? Again and again he proves himself. But is that good enough for Abram? Well, no. (laughs) It's annoying when people don't believe you. If we jump forward to chapter 16, ten years has passed, there's still no kids, Abram and Sarah decide to take matters into their own hands, to give God a helping hand, time for a little lateral thinking. Because after all, they remember God had only said that a son would come from Abram's body. He hadn't said anything about Sarah, so maybe there's another way. Verse 1, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Do you see what she's saying? She's saying, God's not going to bless us at all. We've tried doing things his way. We've waited and we've waited, but it's not doing any good. He stopped me from having children, so we need to do things another way. The plan is they'll bring about God's promise with a shortcut. Instead of waiting and trusting, they'll do it themselves because ten years is just too long. And we see it in those six words, Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Sarah took her maidservant, gave her to her husband to be his wife. Uh, He slept with Hagar, she conceived. There it is. It doesn't matter what excuses you want to make, it doesn't matter how right it might seem at the time, God's blessing doesn't come from fixing things yourself. Whether it was back then or whether it's today. And from that moment, things start to fall apart. And God's blessing just looks further away than ever. Slave and mistress start fighting, if you keep reading. Husband and wife start blaming each other. Slave runs away. It's misery all around. And towards the end of the chapter, when the baby's born, Ishmael, an angel says, uh, Ishmael will be the cause of misery for the world. He says in verse 12 that Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man. I don't quite know what that is, but I've got a fair idea. His hand will be against everyone, everyone's hand against him. As the story unfolds, Ishmael becomes the father of tribes and nations. People that down through the generations are always fighting with Israel. But not only that, the tribes are the ancestors for the modern Arab nations. 
And how much conflict do we see in that part of the world? And it's all because Abram and Sarah couldn't wait for God's promises to come about. One commentator makes this comment. What happens here may seem trifling, but the effects of Abram and Sarah's defective faith endure to this day. Centuries of disharmony, opposition, quarrelling and tension. Abram and Sarah's small act of unfaithfulness has spread like oil on the water. Even today, lives are being lost, billions of dollars spent to make war, to strive for peace, all because two people couldn't wait for God but had to do it their own way. It doesn't matter what excuses you want to make, it doesn't matter how right the decision seems at the time, God's blessing will never come when you try to fix things yourself by your own means, whether it was then or whether it's today. If you feel like God needs a helping hand to fix some of the things in your life. I read an article uh, in the paper a while back about single people and uh, one of the ladies interviewed was in her early 40s and she said that she was a Christian which meant that for her singleness was about sexual purity. But now at the age of 42 she said that she'd regretted that decision because she felt she'd missed out. She felt she would have been better if she'd slept around rather than be obedient. So would she? Would she be better off or or not? It's tough to trust God. But faith says that God's blessing will never come when you fix things yourself. Maybe you think happiness will come when you lie about your resume to get the job or you take that business opportunity that's a little bit dodgy because there's a big profit in it or you cheat on your tax return because you really need the extra money. God's blessing will never come when you fix things yourself. Or maybe you think happiness will come in that harmless friendship with the guy at work because your husband doesn't listen anymore or understand and marriage is just too much hard work. Or maybe you think that blessing will come when you take the promotion, which means more money, but it also means an extra 15 hours of work and so family and church have to be dropped. Or what about revenge? Someone rips us off or hurts us or cuts us off on the road or takes out their bad temper on us and and we want revenge. But God says to leave it with him. Do we trust him with that or or do we try to take shortcuts and fix things ourselves? But this passage teaches us that God's blessing never comes when we fix things ourselves. It only comes when we trust God's promises. You may think Abram and Sarah were pretty patient. Ten years is a long time especially when you're as old as they were. But ten years is just the beginning. Look there at the end of chapter 16, Abram's 86 when Ishmael's born. Now look at the first verse of chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. 13 more years and there's still no kids. That's 23 years from the time God promised it. That's a long time to keep trusting. How long have you been praying for something? I know Peter and Cindy have been praying for some things for 23 years or more, longer. 
for an illness to be healed or a family member to be converted. I oh, know that's the way with Sydney's family. Uh, but maybe God just wants you to keep praying for longer. That's what he expected from Abram. Still, God says, after 23 years, nothing's changed, promises the same, stick with me and trust me. So there in verse 1, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. He's 99, but he's told to walk before God and be blameless. It's what he wants from Abram, it's what he wants from you and from me. As we walk through life, recognise that God is watching and guiding and hearing. He's watching our actions and our motivations and he calls us to be blameless. We're to show by our actions that we're trusting God. We've seen the negative side of that. We've we've seen the, the choice to shortcut God, to help him along a little bit. But the positive side is there in verse 1. You trust by walking before God and being blameless. If we flip over to Romans chapter 1, Paul sums up that sort of life. We're going to finish in Romans. Uh, Paul talks about his mission in life, chapter 1 of Romans verse 5, and he says, Through Jesus and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles. Have a look at this this phrase because it's a a cracker. uh, Our job is to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. The life Paul's calling people to was about the obedience that comes from faith. You see, faith isn't just a feeling. Faith is a confidence in God's promises that leads to concrete decisions. It leads to obedience. It's a trust that says, I'm going to do things God's way. I'm going to choose not to fix them myself. That's one of the key verses in in Romans, really. People overlook it. But obedience that comes from faith is a great summary of the whole book. A few chapters on, over in chapter 4, Paul comes back to this idea of faith and in particular he zooms in on Abraham. And down in verse 19 of chapter 4, he says that ultimately Abraham didn't weaken in his faith. He faced the fact that his body was good as dead and verse 20, he was strengthened in his faith, gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Does that verse sound familiar? It's a quote from Genesis 15. Remember I said that was probably the most important verse in the Bible. God promised it and Abram believed God and then God credited it to him as righteousness. Year after year, Abram trusted that God would keep his word and he lived that out. That's what God needed to see to make Abram his friend. That sort of faith. Faith that led to obedience. It's probably the most important verse in the Bible because it's not just about Abraham. It's about us as well. Look at how Paul goes on in Romans 4 verse 23. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, not just for Abraham, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. 
He was delivered over to death for our sins, not just Abraham. Raised to life for our justification, not just Abraham. God didn't just bring a son from Abram's old body, but he raised a son from death, his son Jesus. When we believe the truth, when we believe how effective that action was, that Jesus died in our place, that he was raised to life so that we might live, then God credits that faith to us. He makes us righteous because of that faith and forgives us and gives us new birth and makes us his children. And that's not something that's just relevant for when we die and when we stand before him in judgement. It actually affects every day that we live here and now. Paul goes on in chapter 5 with a therefore. Therefore, since we've been justified, since we're now God's children, we have peace with God. Peace, uh, peace that we live out now that makes life rich and genuine. And then he goes on, not only so, having been justified, we can also rejoice in our sufferings because we know suffering produces perseverance, character, hope. That's what the obedience that comes from faith looks like. No matter how many years you've been waiting or how tough that wait has been or how tempting it is to think you can give God a helping hand, faith means you can rejoice because no matter how tough things get, God is working through those tough times to make you more like Jesus. That's his big plan, to develop your character and your perseverance and your hope. Because the God who's working in your life is the God who raised Jesus from the grave for you. Believe that. Live that. No matter how tough it gets. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's easy for us to to hear about trust uh, as we're sitting here in inside four walls and uh, life is quiet and calm and easy Uh, and yet it gets much more difficult when we jump back into the world and the mess and the pain and the struggle. Uh, Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus. Help us to keep trusting you and your promises for what you've done for us in him uh, and what you're doing in us and through us that we might live for you and that we might live out the peace and the obedience that comes from our faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.